welcome to a very special episode of Big Nerdy Questions B&Q. We have an amazing guest tonight, the one and only, the amazing author, E.C. Ambrose. Welcome to Big Nerdy Headquarters. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Uh, if you know of E.C. Ambrose, you know her works are incredible. Uh, she is most famous for the Alicia Barber uh, novels, also known as the Dark Apostle series, uh, which are amazing, and we'll get a little bit more into what they are in a little bit. Uh, we also have joining us for this episode, Matt. Hello again. And we have Ed. I have returned. Yes, like any good barber would. Just don't cut it too close. Ooh. Uh, we're going Starting with the party. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, later oh, on, man. we're going to have our actual B&Q, and tonight's subject is an interesting one for EC because her novels are typically categorized as the genre of historical fantasy. So we thought it was ideal to talk to her about the significance of genre. Uh, we all talk about the fans of genre fiction, usually including the broader categories of science fiction and fantasy, but what do authors and content creators, publishers and editors, and the audience truly expect and want when they think in terms of genre? Is it as significant as some people think, uh, or are the boundaries more fluid? So we'll get that, to that discussion a little bit later, uh, but first, Matt, who's our sponsor tonight? Well, Josh, tonight's episode is brought to us by TV Tropes. TV Tropes. <laughs> You're not getting those six hours back. <laughs> Thank you, TV Tropes, and uh, it's a very appropriate sponsor, Matt, uh, because we'll be talking about some genre tropes later. So thank you, TV Tropes. Uh, No, those six hours were well worth it as we learned about what it truly meant to be a red shirt. Uh, but that was our Star Trek dating episode a few weeks ago. Somehow I always manage to wind up one way or another getting to the Xanatos Gambit page. All roads lead to Xanatos? Is that a hashtag for the episode? I think so. All roads lead to Xanatos. Got it. I still stand by the fact that I would go on a blind date with Q. I I, I think we all would. Yeah, I mean, we have to assume it would go well if he likes you, so. Yes. Although, tonight, Ed, I think you have to determine if you would go on blind dates from the Dark Apostle series. Uh, that's, that's a rough, rough, uh, road to walk down, I'll tell you that. As is the tradition at Big Nerdy Questions, when we have a special guest, we like to get them to provide our Big Nerdy recommendation, and who better than an esteemed author to provide such a recommendation? So I'll turn the floor over to EC for her recommendations. Cool. Uh, so this was kind of a tough one, because there's all these amazing things out there that, uh, you know, the kind of book that you read it and you want to run out and grab people in the street and say, oh my gosh, you got to read this book. Uh, so I read a couple of those, actually, as part of my World Fantasy Awards judging a couple of years back. Uh, I read the sequels, but I'm going to recommend to you the first volumes in the series. And the first one would be California Bones by Greg Van Eekhout. And this is a series where sort of an alternate um, California, it's sort of modern day, but northern and southern California have split. They split off from the rest of the country. And Southern California has magic in the form of mythic bones that have been captured in the tar pits and in other ways. So the magic users can basically absorb the magic of these ancient creatures and then use it. Uh, it's fantastic in more ways than one. And the other one that I would want to push and get out there, because more people should read this series, is by Tex Thompson. It is, uh, I guess I would say, a weird Western series. The first book is One Night in Sixes, 
And again, it's sort of an alternate America, but there's not a lot of America that you'll recognize aside from the feel of the West. And this is a deeply human, beautifully moving, and very strange series. Uh, especially, she does a great job with point of view, with sinking you into the perspectives of a wide variety of characters who are often at odds with each other. And that makes it for a very rich environment for conflict and character, which, of course, I love. <laughs> Thank you so much. Those two are great recommendations. And I'm sure our listeners who already love your works will be eager to jump on those recommendations uh, that you've given us. Uh, so I believe I'm going to turn the floor over to Ed to talk to you for a good few minutes about your works. Uh, Ed, the floor is yours. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I'd like to say again, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I really appreciate it, and it's an honor for me to speak to somebody whose books I've read and enjoyed as much as yours. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been great getting to know you over Facebook the last couple of years. That's how we initially met, uh, mm -hmm. and now here we are, you know, together at last uh, in some strange way. Yeah. That is our uh, podcast little... slogan: "Some strange way." That's the hashtag for the evening. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll give you a little perspective here. I, I came across uh, Alicia Barber. Uh, I was in a consignment store. And, uh, I was doing a lot of traveling for work, and uh, I decided to get an audio book to listen to while I was driving around. And I was uh, perusing those, and I came across Alicia Barber, and I just looked at it and you know, kind of read the back. Seemed dark, and that's right up my alley. So I picked it up, and I listened to the audio version before I purchased the novel, and I absolutely loved it. Uh, you. <laughs> you you have uh, <laughs> you have uh, certainly given us some characters to love and hate in that series, and I'd invite you to uh, talk to our listeners a little bit about the series to you know give a firsthand accounting of it, maybe your inspiration and uh, so on and so forth. Sure. So the Dark Apostle series was basically born out of research. Um, I wanted to learn a little bit more about medieval surgery for one scene in a different book that I was writing. I wanted to, to make that book feel a little more realistic, even though it's secondary world fantasy. So I thought, well, it would be good to know a little bit more about how the protagonist's wounds get treated when he's brought in after being attacked by a tiger. So I started reading a little bit here and there. I started reading a couple of books and then 10 and then 12. And then I had a shelf full of books about medieval surgery. And I thought this has gone way too far. Uh, but for me, a book begins when I have a person in a place with a problem. So I'm doing all of this reading, and suddenly I had the visionary moment that started the book. And it's the character is standing framed in a sunlit door with blood dripping from his hands, and he's saying, my God, I've killed them all. And I thought, who did he kill? And, and why? And what's going to happen next? Uh, and you've read the book, so you know that that scene actually appears, I think it's in chapter two or maybe the beginning of chapter three, mm -hmm. uh, on you know, Elisha's very bad day. <laughs> that kicks off the series. So it was kind of born from wondering about who these medical practitioners were during the 14th century and discovering the ways that they interacted. There's so much, many layers of prejudice happening both within the medical profession and then all around the principal characters that it was really uh, interesting to play with. And again, that rich territory for conflict that I enjoy so much. Um, Elisha uh, has, is a character that I have been rooting for since the first book. He's always faced with such hardships and such difficulties. Uh, 
he's very epitome of an underdog within this series, and he's also you know very self doubting. Uh, what was your inspiration for his character? Well, I wanted to start with someone who was essentially a mid-career professional. He's very good at what he does. He's a great surgeon. He knows that, and he's kind of arrogant about it when he starts out. Mm-hmm. But the the incidents of the terrible day take him down a few notches. Uh, and when he discovers the world of magic, it is uh, a revelation to him and um, both disturbing and enlightening. So I think he's drawn to that in the way that many people would be. Uh, but I wanted to take someone maybe kind of like me who gets derailed by life, who's going, wait a minute, what, what? <laughs> you know, he thought he knew what was happening around him. He thought he understood the world and his part in it. And then all of that explodes, not only through the first book, but then over the course of the series as a whole. With each volume, his perspective changes. And, and that was something that I wanted to work with as well, to sort of take this character who thought he understood himself uh, and then place him in situations where he has to make some choices that get progressively harder. Um, and William Faulkner has said that the, uh, the heart of fiction is the human heart in conflict with itself. So Elisha's medical profession and then his magical understanding gave me an opportunity to really explore that. Uh, in terms of where he came from as a character, he was born like Athena, I guess, fully fleshed in my mind. Um, okay. I'm not sure uh, what else to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I really like the character, and uh, I always tend to pull for you know the, the underdog, and he seems to always find himself in uh, precarious <laughs> you know situations, uh, like uh, most notably because it's freshest in my mind in the fourth volume where he's in you know Germany and a different land trying to deal with all of these. I'm not going to spoil it too much, but he's dealing with all these issues, and he is basically a stranger in that land, and he's up against everything. Mm-hmm. I, I just love that kind of character, and it, it really speaks to me. And uh, uh, Josh, any questions on your end? Well, I was just going to say one of the things I really appreciate about this novel, or about the series in general, is the historical immersion. Uh, Matt and I are both trained historians, and uh-huh. it's uh, it is it feels right. Uh, I, I I have to compare it somewhat to reading the Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. The, the immersion into a medieval setting. Medieval England, particularly in the first book, but, you know, changes later. I mean, yes, there's the magic part of it. But it feels, you know, completely historically accurate to the time period with the way you talk about class and smells and the... You've created a world that is correct and in some ways, of course, different because of the fantasy. Uh, Another parallel I thought of is Neil Stevenson's The Baroque Age for a later time. Uh, And I think Stevenson is a little bit more verbose than you in his style but the same Mm -hmm. sort of effect of the immersion so how did you approach trying having to be so accurate to the historical time period because i really do appreciate that i usually start with sort of general resources and secondary sources uh sort of the books for the general reader look for the bits in there that i find most intriguing Mm -hmm. and then i'm looking for the footnotes and the bibliographies so drilling down through layers of research material to say, okay, well, where did they find this bit? Uh, and then finding, whenever I can, primary sources. Uh, there are some great descriptions of you know people ice skating on the Thames when it froze over using ox bones that they strapped to their feet. Uh, and those kind of details are the things that I'm looking for. 
I also was very pleased to have the opportunity to visit England a couple of times and to stay in houses of the period that I was writing about. And I think that really helped me to sort of immerse myself in the mindset and the world of my characters. What were they seeing? What were they experiencing on a daily basis? What were they thinking about? What were their concerns? Uh, and really trying to bring that out through every detail that's incorporated on the page. Uh, mm -hmm. Because especially with historical fantasy, it's really that accrual of details. You know, I could tell you there's a castle on a hill, but that's sort of meaningless. If I tell you that someone it was hand crafting the stones that go into that castle, now we're getting a little more realistic. And then when we get down to the level of the tools that he's using to do that and the stone dust in the air while he works, and suddenly you have a scene, you have characters, you know, all five senses can be engaged. I mean, as a, and a good example, maybe to, to make it visceral, no pun intended this time, is how you discuss the, the amputations uh, and the other surgeries where there's no magic involved. It is it is gruesome, but completely and entirely accurate. But you don't go into, you don't, you're not brutal for brutality's sake. You're brutal because that's the time period, I mean, that is medicine in the time period, uh, and Lord knows that oil treatment in the first volume would have been <laughs> excruciating uh, for anyone. And yeah. if you haven't read the book yet, just wait till you get there and you'll be screaming too. came across that and it was like, my God, they're just finding more ways to torture these poor men after they've already been through battle. They've already been injured, uh, grievously so. And now you're going to pour boiling oil on them. That's just perfect. So... You know, one of the complaints that people have and often have about historical fiction is that the the protagonist, especially, but the characters in general, seem to feel more like you know contemporary people in those situations. But honestly, I think any medical practitioner with a conscience who's told by his boss that he's supposed to pour boiling oil on his patients <laughs> would probably have a moment's pause yeah, I, at that. I was um. It's obviously not quite the same thing, but I was picturing the scene from Game of Thrones where the, the gentleman <laughs> is covered in molten metal. Uh, obviously, that was more fatal, but it was the visual I had in my head when reading that. And uh, He wanted gold. Yeah. Yes, he wanted a crown. Yeah. He got his crown. He wanted a golden <laughs> crown, and he got it. Yeah. They did not say that. You, you know, as we're discussing this, I notice a theme that I like just punishing myself with the books I read. If I'm reading George Martin <laughs> or you know, the, the Dark Apostle I mean, Stephen series. Stephen King is one of your favorites, and yeah. he's not nice to his characters, typically. Nope. <laughs> well, what, what, what's that saying? Uh, the, as an author, if you love a character, torture them. Well, my tagline is, you do not want to be my hero. Um, <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, people are usually like, well, does that mean that you kill them? And I said, no, that would be too easy on them. Yeah. So, another author you should read is Carol Berg. Carol if you're Berg? in for that kind of thing, then All right, Ed, Carol Berg. You know. <laughs> I'm writing it down as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> she and I once had a wonderful time. Uh, we had a panel together in Denver at the Denver WorldCon, and someone else was supposed to moderate. There's supposed to be four or five panelists on it, and she and I were the only two people who showed up. So we kind of looked at each other. We'd never met before, never read each other's books. And we said, well, we're here to talk about torturing your characters. So we had the <laughs> most fantastic conversation. It was one of the best panels I've ever been on um, because both of us were very open to the idea of torturing our characters and how and why and when and, and with what uh, and for how long. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I have to hand it to you, uh, and I'll, I'll go into spoilers for the first book at least. With the events of that terrible day, you didn't think it could get much worse for Alicia, but man – 
It really does. <laughs> you didn't think so, but you'd be wrong. Yeah. Wait till uh, you read book five, man. Oh, gosh. Okay, yeah, I wanted to ask you, I, I know you finished it, and that's the last volume in the series, correct? Yes, yes it is. Okay. Uh, I think he needs a are rest. You, are you content with the ending? Are you, happy with the way it, are you happy with the way it turned out? You know, when I thought of the ending several years ago at this point, I thought, wow, that's perfect, that's really evil, uh, and yet so in keeping with everything that's gone before that I, I'm super happy with it. I'm hoping that my editor is just as happy and that, uh, you know, happy in the sense of thinking, oh, my God, what have you done? Um, <laughs> yes. That's a, a great well, segue. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ed. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I'll, I'll ramble on, so just okay. go ahead. Well, that's a great segue <laughs> into our more bro- broader discussion of genre um, and you know, what editors expect. And the uh, first thing I wanted to ask about, specifically with your series, I really enjoy how people with magic abilities can communicate through elemental means. Mm-hmm. And I've seen other works of fantasy have some sort of secret communication between people of magic abilities, either in a different realm or typically it's telepathy, just plain old telepathy. I was really interested that you chose to make the telepathy connected to the four classical elements. Uh, so was that a conscious decision to try to put your own spin on one of the tropes of the genre, or did it just was it a natural fit for the series? Originally, the series was actually much more invested in the four elements. Uh, because they were sort of key to both the understanding of magic and magical principles. Uh, I did research historical magic as well and historical understandings of magic, so that informed my magic system and how it gets used a good deal. And, of course, they also underpinned a lot of the understandings of just how how the world worked, the natural laws of the time, if you will. Uh, and in one of the versions that I developed for the overall story arc, Elisha is referred to as the uh, hero of five deaths, and he undergoes a uh, an execution by each of the elements. Oh man! Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that it ended up getting changed a good deal uh, as I worked with my editor to develop a larger, broader story arc. Um, and some of those elements slipped away, but I'm I'm pleased to see that there's enough sneaking through that the uh, the keen-eyed reader will notice. <laughs> well, I really did appreciate it. I I thought, of course, it makes perfect sense because a medieval a medieval scientist or a medieval magician would think in terms of those elements because of Arist- the the pre- predominance of Aristotelian thought. Uh, mm-hmm. So well played, <laughs> I guess is what I'm saying. The uh, the uh, the process of affinity that they u- that you use in the story, uh, the the scene that just sticks out in my mind the most is when uh, Elisha stopped all of the arrows in the battle in the first novel and how awesome that was. I, I, and when he says contact, mm-hmm. that's just like that's awesome to me because <laughs> I, I I watch a lot of anime and I read a lot of things, but when when a character you know does that. Okay, I'm going to call out my, you know, battle slogan or whatever contact. You know, that's that's pretty cool. But I thought that was just a great scene where he stepped into the field of death and then turned all the arrows into uh, what was it? Rain, I believe. Yes. Yep. Okay, that was awesome. The rain is falling like arrows. The arrows are falling like rain. He makes the connection. I so much prefer yeah, that to the night arrows of Michael Crichton's timeline, but that's another story. <laughs> oh. You know, I've not read that book, and I'd like to. <laughs> Just so for context, 
the aren't that then that novel and in the film the armies are fighting <clears throat> using flaming arrows at night the commander ominously says prepare the night arrows which are simply arrows that are not lit so regular arrows <laughs> got it yes <laughs> the night arrows prepare the stealth arrows yes exactly <laughs> Not nearly as impressive as converting them to rain. Okay, one no. of the challenges of developing a, a, ma- a structured magical system is always, you know, how do I find new ways to use this, and what kinds of potential does it have? So it's always fun when I come across something like that, and I go, oh, this, you know, this could work. Um, so I'm glad to hear that it did. Well, and honestly, I all three of us are a bit of gamers, and I would mm-hmm. love a role-playing game set in your world where you could specialize in one of the four elements for your magic tree and have those uh-huh. skills um, associated with it. And you could be a medic, of course, and follow Elisha's path. Uh, but the story would be the same as your plot overall, but the side quests helping different people in villages and magic and science, that would be amazing, mm-hmm. especially in VR. So, hey, I know we have a few game designers who listen to this show. If you're listening, contact DC. <laughs> Because this could be the American equivalent of the Witcher series full out. So this has potential. That would be a blast. You said said RPG, and I'm sitting here thinking pen and paper. And I'm like, you know, with the the right homebrew, you could actually do this with the Dungeons & Dragons system. Yeah, you could. Yeah. I would get a lot of seeds and start thinking of what they should be. (laughs) Yeah. Start breaking the rules already. No, uh... It, just as a brief <laughs> aside, uh, you were talking about The Witcher. If you've never read mm-hmm. the, the novels, those are actually pretty good, too. Uh, I've read the first two collections of short stories. I haven't read any of the novels proper yet, but they're good. Yeah, so it's from more mm-hmm. fantasy now. EC, I'm interested. You, you served on the Fantasy Awards. You, you speak with other fantasy authors. What, in your mind, delineates a work of fantasy from other kinds of fiction. Oh, man. <laughs> he's, he's just bringing out the big guns right away. <laughs> just so, right off the bat. fantasy is invested in an exploration of the human potential in ways that may not be available with our understanding of natural laws. Did that help? Probably not much. No, that's, uh, that's really profound, actually. It's not always magic. but We usually associate fantasy with magic, and most fantasy novels do contain magic, but not all of them. But they almost always contain that sense that we're discovering something more about people and about the interactions and what is within us and what is among us um, as a, a race, I guess. Sometimes in cooperation or collision with other kinds of races, sometimes magical races, sometimes different uh, types of people in the same world. But I think that's where fantasy really comes from, is the sense of discovering humanity, even when the humanity we're discovering is maybe through the eyes of a dragon. That's a fantastic answer. No, no pun, again, no pun intended, because fantasy <laughs> is the fantastic. But uh, Matt, I do want to have you chime in here, because I think some of our listeners may be thinking, well, what about elves and things like that? So Matt, will you please quickly delineate high fantasy from mm. standard fantasy? Are we also going to talk about the difference between sci-fi and fantasy? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So, uh, Josh, you you and I both are formally trained as librarians. We've both actually gone through the library school and done all that fancy stuff. Yes, classification is our cup of tea. 
<laughs> so we we make this. There, there are several delineations that we make. One is sci-fi versus fantasy. Another one is high fantasy versus low fantasy. And they've all kind of started to blur together really since, and I may catch a lot of hell from our listeners for saying this, but I really think the line blurred in 1977 with a little film that some of you may have seen called Star Wars. <laughs> yes, I'm going yeah. to catch holy hell for, a good for point. uttering. Think, I've always said so, Star Wars is more of a fantasy than a science fiction story. Well, the, the the way I see fantasy is the introduction, and it, it, it's probably a uh, it, it's probably a less intelligent way of saying what he sees. That honestly, <laughs> but it, it it's bringing. It's bringing in things that can't be explained with science. And I don't remember who said it, but but there's a quote that says, any sufficiently advanced technology should be indistinguishable from magic. Arthur C. Clarke. Yep. There's cool. And I think that's what makes the delineation for me between science fiction and fantasy is, do we understand the mechanics of what is happening? If we understand the mechanics, it's science fiction. If we don't understand the mechanics, it's fantasy. And that's why we get like Star Wars being a mix of the two, because we understand the technology of the blasters and the starships, but we have the mystical power of the Force, and depending on your interpretation and which of the Star Wars universes you follow, uh, mm. there are lightsabers that actually require the Force to be activated. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit of a fantasy element to that, too. So it becomes a sort of talisman two, in a way. Right. So, you know, we get those blurring together there. But then we have the, the low fantasy, high fantasy delineation. And high fantasy is generally <clears throat> magic and dragons and, you know, the really out there, think Lord of the Rings kind of thing going on. Skyrim is another good example. Yes, Skyrim is a great example of high fantasy. Now, for low fantasy... You're you're going to get subgenres in there such as historical fantasy. Oh, look! It just tied right back there. Didn't it? <laughs> hey! So, and, and low fantasy is not meant as an insult, but it's more grounded in the world we know. Mm-hmm. It's the world we know with some extra little elements, perhaps bits of magic, or but but nothing that's like completely. You know, you need to you need to suspend your disbelief completely. No, I like for example. I mean, uh, uh, EC, you could pr- prove me wrong, but I don't expect a walking, talking, f- seven foot tall cat to suddenly appear as Elisha's next patient. Okay. <laughs> It'd be entertaining, but I, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, whereas in something like Tolkien, where you have certain races, probably more so in a newer kind of high fantasy that expands beyond the Tolkien type races. Who knows? Yeah, I think a large element of genre is the contract with the reader, which is essentially the the terms on which I'm delivering the story experience. So you know that when you come to my books, they're going to feel like a gritty, realistic medieval world. And therefore, that defines some of the parameters for things that could happen there and things that couldn't. you're pretty sure that there aren't any fantasy creatures. There is magic, but you also know a little bit about the parameters on that. So 
you understand the guidelines under which this world is created and under which the story will take place. And that's the contract that essentially we've signed together when you start reading my books. So the contract might establish at the beginning that there could be dragons or there could be elves or you will discover strange things on the next continent, things you've never seen or heard of before. And that's a different kind of contract. And the, the author of the book violates that contract at their peril. I was just about to ask you about, um, you know, I, I don't know where I've heard the phrase, but uh, fiction has no rules aside from what the author imposes upon him or herself. But once those rules are imposed, you have to stick to them. I mean, I butchered the quote, but I've heard something like that before. Uh, to go to science fiction for a second, if a, I know from that point of view, if an author at the beginning of the book or the film says there is no faster than light travel in this series ever. It's a scientific impossibility. We're never going to go there. I'm a little perturbed if the climax involves breaking that rule to suddenly travel faster than light, especially if there's no indication that it's ever going to happen. There's completely impossible. I'm fine with break with bending the rules and breaking the rules. If it makes sense within the storyline. But like you said, it's mm-hmm. a contract with the, with the reader that you've set the groundwork for certain expectations. And twists are amazing. I love a twist, especially in the vein of like a Maupassant, uh, or you have the original twist, King of the Twist. But that's different from going to a realm that is completely devoid of what you're expecting it to be. Uh, so, on the other hand, I wanted to ask you, EC, with that sort of contract, is there a similar contract as an author with the publisher and the editor, that they expect that your novels are going to have these same elements. And if you came to them and saying, oh, well, this novel is about a dragon named Steve, and he happens to be going to high school, and oh, by the way, his best friend is on the Starship Voyager, (laughs) what would they say to something like, I I feel like they would say, are you sure about that? Yeah, that that seems pretty unlikely. Uh, it's definitely one of the big considerations, because when you deliver a book to the editor, they have to think, how do I sell this? How do I offer this to readers? And how do I help this book to find its ideal readership? So who is the readership for high school dragons with spaceships? Uh, you know, uh, I, I, I would read it. But. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it becomes very hard. It becomes hard for the marketing department. It becomes hard to figure out what do you put on, on the cover so that the right reader identifies it and goes, oh, yeah, I'm going to really love that book. Usually the easier it is to define the book, the easier it is to point to an audience and say, these people, you know, this is a book that's going to appeal to fans of uh, The Wheel of Time. And those fans will say, oh, cool, there's another book that I'm going to love. But if you say this is a book that's going to appeal to fans of The Wheel of Time who are really into science fiction with rivets, you got a much smaller audience. It's like a Venn diagram and you keep lowering what part of the Venn diagram is covered. There you go. There's, there's your pull quote for the day. Yes. Uh, so when I was trying to sell this series, you know, I was super excited about it. I thought this is, you know, I, I love this book. I need this book to get out to readers. People that I talked to about it were excited, but it's just enough off of the beaten track that I would send it to an editor and they would say, wow, you know, I really enjoyed this, but I don't know how to sell it. And it wasn't until I had an, hit the editor who ended up buying it, who said, oh, this is kind of like Naomi Novik. And, of course, she was already a success. 
So when he talked to the marketing people, when he talked to the publisher and said, can I buy this book? He could point to someone else who was doing something similar and say, look, she's already sort of plowing this road. She's developing a market for this kind of historical fantasy crossover. Uh, I think we can follow in that direction. And then the publisher was happy. But without knowing how to sell the book, the, it's very hard for them to buy it. So there has to be a proven audience for the for the subgenre for them to want to take a chance. Yeah, and it's interesting watching them develop. So the project I'm working on now is called Drake Master, and it's an epic historical fantasy set in China during the Mongol invasion. Uh, love Mongols, fascinated by the history of China, oodles more research. And while I was working on this book, um, Elizabeth Baer came out with her, oh gosh, I'm going to probably miss up the titles, uh, Shattered Pillars series, which are set in Mongolia. And her, her world is quite different from the world that I was developing, that I am developing. But uh, she sort of sent out a plea for a bunch of us to read the book and get excited about it because her publisher basically said, well, we're publishing this because you're Elizabeth Baer and everybody knows you and everybody loves you, but we're just not sure that a book set in this sort of quasi-historical Asia is going to sell. Um, yet I think this series did pretty well. Now, of course, several years later, we have Ken Liu with his uh, Dandelion, Dandelion Throne. Um, the Grace of Kings was the first book. And he actually ter- coined the term silk punk. So suddenly we have something to point to. And we can say, look, look, it's a subgenre. It's a thing. People <laughs> want it. People will buy it. And therefore you can publish more of it. Instead of just saying, oh, here is the one Chinese fantasy that can be published this year. Sorry, we're done with that. Uh, saying that there's a growing readership for these kinds of books is immensely helpful in terms of marketing. I mean, so from, uh, just uh, as a question, kind of from a from a librarian to an author, mm. uh, do, do you think that it's easier or harder to uh, make the argument to get your book to market? By operating in a subgenre instead of just in the like going straight full like Lord of the Rings style, you know, high fantasy. Mm-hmm. Do, do, you, do you think that makes it easier or harder to get a book to market? It's probably a bit harder just because it's not quite as easy to point to the spot on the shelf or point to that readership that you're hoping for. Uh, you know, what the publishers will tell you is that they're looking for something that's the same but different. They want the same thing they published last year that sold really well, just different enough that the same readers will get excited about it but won't feel like it's a carbon copy. So they're constantly on the lookout for something that will fit in the vein of stuff that they've already marketed, stuff that's already doing well. Uh, and so from that perspective, it can be a little bit harder to find your way in if you have a book that's sort of one step to the side. On the other hand, if you can define that difference and say, here's what I'm doing that makes this work stand out in the market, that becomes a hook in a different way, uh, but probably a hook to a smaller readership. But on the other, other hand, on the gripping hand, as, as we might say, uh, there's a sense that a lot of readers are hungry for something that's new. Uh, so, you know, who, who are you reaching out to? The people who want something that's new, the people who want to read the same kind of books that they've always read before, just with a little more action or with this kind of hero or that kind of hero. Uh, it's It can be hard to negotiate that marketplace for sure. 
Do you, do you think subgenres popularity go in cycles? Because the, I'm thinking, particularly dystopian fantasy several years ago was the thing. I mean, you had Suzanne Collins in that space. You had, it was coming in the tales of the Handmaiden's Tale. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got you know, several other, the major, especially in teen fiction, but also more generally dystopian fantasy was the genre. And now it seems like they're mm-hmm. still coming out with dystopian fantasy, but a lot less. So I'm wondering, are, are editors and publishers hoping to find, if something is hot, like say that Silk Punk becomes the next trend for 2019, are they suddenly going to have authors be like, please send us manuscripts in the Silk Punk genre? Probably they will. The uh, The trouble is the publishing cycle runs 12 to 18 months in advance. So the books that are coming out this year were bought last year and so on, sort of down the line. And when something starts to bubble up out of the marketplace and there seems to be a lot of enthusiasm for it, yeah, the publishers go nuts buying up all of the things that they possibly can. When I was marketing Elisha Barber, the uh, the big thing was urban fantasy. Everybody wanted urban fantasy. And I kept trying to convince them, well, it is urban fantasy. It's just that the herb is medieval London. Uh, they weren't really going for that for whatever reason. But you could go, as a traditional fantasy reader, I would go to the bookstore and get frustrated because everything on the shelf would be sexy werewolves and vampires. And it's like, you know, okay, I get it. It's selling. But there's people who don't read that. No. At all. (laughs) At all. And it felt like we weren't being recognized by the market anymore. And, of course, what happened is this huge glut of urban fantasy novels some of which were beautiful, original, and striking, and those authors have gone on to have successful careers and maybe are still publishing, in fact, those same series, and a number of them that just completely tanked because they were trying to fill that urgent need in the population to read those kinds of books. Uh, And I think they sort of neglected the rest of the marketplace for a while, but chances are somebody's going to come up with the next cool iteration of urban fantasy, and suddenly there will be a craze for it again. Somebody will say, oh, wow, that that's the big thing now. Let's let's all glom on. So one can hope that the, the glomming won't be quite so vigorous and there will still be room in the market for other kinds of books. Because I, I, I think I think you're right. Audiences, yes, there are certain subgenres like, ooh, I want more of this. But as a person who loves science fiction and fantasy works, if it's good science fiction and fantasy, I don't really – care what subgenre it's in i'm just really happy to have that work uh to read it or to view it and uh, to absorb what the author has given me so but maybe i'm more genre agnostic than what the editors think is out there yeah yeah the you know the marketing departments are uh, are definitely driven by the notion that they can define a particular genre readership and then go after it um and that readers don't move around as much and yet I think many readers are like you. When they, they get something new, they get something exciting. And then they're going to pass it off to their friend and say, yeah, I know usually you read high fantasy, but here's this weird Western thing that really you got to try it because this is awesome. Exactly. For me as a reader, I always feel like it's not so much the, the subgenre for me, but I'll you know, I lean towards sci-fi over fantasy, but I really just look for things that are really heavy on character development. And if I can, if I can find something with that's well written with strong character development, and it's just not like it's not just like oh, sexy vampire guy 
does creepy stuff and wins, <laughs> and that that creeps me out. But if it if it's something that's it's well constructed, it's got a good story. But most important to me is that the characters actually develop and learn from their actions, and maybe even you know experience a, a major personal change that's not just plot convenient but actually makes sense for the character that's what i'm looking for as a reader and when i find that i just devour it and ed i think that's why maybe you would gravitate to somebody like a neil gaiman similar to matt i mean the character development is amazing neil Neil gaiman's a fantastic writer and and he doesn't get spoken enough about at least in my circles Uh, it's just fantastic uh they're actually um they're uh doing a television version of his book, American Gods, which, if you've never read it, was fantastic. It's like, if you know of the Percy Jackson series, how they deal with, uh, you know, physical manifestations of the gods and all that, mm-hmm. it's like that, except for adults. <laughs> nice little twist. Uh, so, you see, the, the question that initially inspired our discussion of a genre on our Twitter page, which, by the way, follow us, at BNQ Podcast. Uh, join uh, join one of our over 2,000 people who get nerdy memes every week. Huzzah. One of us. One of us. Exactly. One of us. <laughs> uh, and EC is also on Twitter, at EC Ambrose, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Uh, so we did a Twitter poll four months ago, uh, and we asked, should bookstores like Barnes & Noble continue placing science fiction and fantasy in the same aisle together, or should they be separated? And at the end of the poll... One-third said keep them together. Two-thirds said they should be in separate places in the bookstore, which made me try to think. So that one made that inspired the discussion about, well, what, what is genre fiction then? Uh, and we've talked a little bit about science fiction and fantasy and the delineation between the two. Uh, so as a buyer of books, do you find it convenient when a bookstore – has all the different kinds of genre fiction together, or are you more inclined to support the ones that will have high fantasy, regular fantasy, historical fantasy, um, science fiction with rivets, etc.? Well, when I was thinking about this and sort of preparing a few comments and, and thoughts in advance, I, I remembered when I first discovered Tad Williams, who is, of course, principally high fantasy. He did. Uh, he has some other contemporary fantasy works out at this point. Uh, but I found him while I was looking for Connie Willis, who is principally a science fiction writer. Doomsday book, writes a lot of, of short favorites. stories in particular. Uh, so literally I'm browsing on the shelf of these combined things, looking to see if Connie Willis has something new. And there is Tad Williams next door with a book called Tail Chasers Song. Uh, and I thought, huh, that looks pretty interesting. I'm going to give that a try. So one of my fears, if we dissolve those, you know, the, the single unified category and start breaking out all of the little categories is that it's people aren't going to make those kinds of discoveries. And I think we may already be seeing this with, of course, the ebook revolution. You're more likely to be offered something very, very similar to what you've already got in your cart or what you bought last time mm-hmm. than you are to be offered something that might, in fact, have the kind of character development that excites you because Amazon's algorithms don't know that. You know, they know you bought an urban fantasy book, so here's another one. Uh, I made the mistake once of buying a children's book written in French through my Amazon account, and then for months afterwards it was offering me more children's books and more books in French. 
Um, Avi. You know, that, that's really only, what I was looking for. That's only problematic if you don't speak French. Je voudrais le livre des enfants, s'il vous plaît. Je suis le barbeur. Uh, for context, so, my historical background is French colonialism, so I could probably riff for days on that. But we won't do. It. We won't go there. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Ever. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> so, especially with new authors and with new works, discoverability is the big watchword. How are people going to find my book among the thousands of other books that are coming out? And the the genre bookshelf, a la Barnes and Noble is a great way for people to be able to come in and just browse. They can say, oh, what's new in the genre? And all those books will be shelved together, whether they're science fiction or fantasy. Uh, and people may be browsing for one thing, and then they're going to spot the cover, or they're going to see that, oh, that, you know, that sounded cool. I heard about that from my friend. I want to pick that up. So whereas if we divide those things out too much, then we're losing the opportunity to grab those crossover readers. So with discoverability, one of the things that I like to do for finding things that I would otherwise never encounter is, like you said, the World Fantasy Awards. I look for who wins those, who wins the Hugo, and who wins the Nebula, and who is nominated each year uh, Mm -hmm. to give me ideas of authors that I otherwise would not have heard of and and use those to kind of expand my reading web. Uh, It's another strategy. And... I like doing that, but I also there are some authors and kind of stories that just never hit the radar enough to be in the awards that I also want to try to reach for. So it's a challenge for readers as well for discovering these new amazing works. And even though we have so many things nowadays, like you would think Amazon, Reddit, WorldCat, all these things would help with discovering new kinds of books, but they really only help, like you said, if it's a very similar match to what you've already read, or at least what you've put into the database. And it, you get the same thing at Barnes and Noble, even in the last time, if you pay attention, if you go buy something there at the bottom of your receipt, you may also like A, B, yep. and C. And it's this it, things of the same genre. Mm-hmm. Most of the time it's things I already own, but that's beside the point. <laughs> well, because the tie I, is the genre. They don't look for things like books with strong descriptions of historical place. How do right. you categorize yeah, it's that? Not Netflix. No. Well, even mm-hmm. even Netflix has a bad job of doing that. You you have I had Netflix categorization yesterday, and it was like uh, films with strong female leads, and I think one of them was Get Shorty. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, there's a flaw in the Matrix. Uh, but. Have you ever done the uh, gotten the category pop up of uh, like? It was something like dark, gritty comedy, and it's like all these like really dark things, and then VeggieTales was on there. <laughs> well, vegetables can be like, covered God, in grit if they're guys, not washed appropriately. It, it's it's the subliminal messages that get you. <laughs> <laughs> See, for for me, thinking from from the librarian's perspective, and you can probably relate to this, Josh, but I I used to be in the category, you know, growing up, and really. Up until I actually went to library school, I was strongly in the camp of science fiction and fantasy should be separate. But after I actually went through and learned about how cataloging and classification works in both Dewey and LCC, it would be a nightmare yes. to actually separate them because not all, because if if you try to separate them, then it's like okay, you're gonna have 
genre, but then you're going to have subgenre, and then where do you classify the one to cross between them? Things like Star Wars. Sorry, listeners, I said it again. Well, things <laughs> like the Dark Apostle. You are that yeah. guy. It's like it's like where, do you, and then new subgenres keep cropping up, so you have to create subcategories and new Dewey and LCC subcodes for them, and it's you're going to hit ad infinitum at some point. And you're you're gonna hit your Dewey number is gonna be something point, and you're gonna have like thirty or forty digits after it. Oh, and by the way, LCC separates genre books by the country of origin of the author. Uh, so, like <laughs> Agatha Christie and Arthur C. Clarke are together, but Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov are not. Yeah, that's the more you know. So uh, that <laughs> well, makes browsing all the all the more interesting. One of the things that uh, is interesting about genre, uh, last year I had the opportunity to take a workshop with David Farland, who is a fantasy novelist, as David Wolverton. He also writes science fiction. He's written an amazing number of things, including Star Wars novels. Uh, but he is a fantastic teacher of writing and the skills of, of writing. Um, and he, for a while, worked in Hollywood. He was a green lighter for movie trailers. So his job was to watch a movie trailer and ask which audience it was trying to reach and if it was successful at reaching that core audience. So one of the things he talks about a lot is the emotional core of genre. And from this perspective, science fiction and fantasy are often hitting the same emotional beats. They are both reaching for a sense of wonder, a sense of awe about the world and discovering new things. From that perspective, it makes perfect sense to have them together, and it makes perfect sense that readers would love science fiction and fantasy both, because they can have that sense of entering into a new world and finding something there that they never imagined. But nevertheless, like you said earlier, both science fiction and fantasy, once you've entered that world, provides you with the best window into what it means to be human. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're never as far from it as we think we are. No, I mean, that's... I, I love the stories that truly, as far reaching as they can be, make you think, well, this is a window to humanity. And I'll bring in the other Star franchise, Matt. Of course I will, because I'm the Trekker of the panel. <laughs> the original Star Trek series did a great job with, with this of bringing in plots that were fantastic, to use the you know literal sense of the term, but were honestly mm-hmm. just reflections of the human condition and especially of the time period. For example, there's the story where... Two men are trying to kill each other because one's painted white on his left side and black on his right, and the other is the reverse. And they have to annihilate each other. And, of course, that novel, that episode was written in the heights of the civil rights um, movement. So fantasy and science fiction really give you a window into that. And, for example, I don't know if this was intended, but in reading uh, the first novel of your series, EC, the communication between the various people who have magic abilities without the other classes or without the doctors and the officers knowing about it, I felt it was like refugees communicating in a different language in a new society where they couldn't talk. Uh, it was almost like these people who are so discriminated against for other things have this way to communicate and keep the faith with each other, keep the hope alive. Um, and I really felt... It was a, a great way to subvert class, a great way to subvert the rigidity of society uh, to help these people who otherwise wouldn't have a voice. 
I mean, you, it's the contrast between Elisha having to kowtow to the surgeons, the the actual surgeon surgeons, but then having the mm-hmm. ability to go talk to Bridget and the other characters in a completely free form. That, I felt, was so equivalent to what perhaps a domestic servant would feel today, not able to speak up, and then they get a chance to go speak their mind with other, other like people. Uh, so, again, it's just one example, but I feel like you really were able to show a window to our condition through looking at medieval barbers and magic. Thank you. I don't yeah, know who was uh, there, but I really it was one saw of the- it. It was one of the reasons why uh, I think I got as intrigued and invested in the series as I did at the time that I was writing. It was the sense of uh, those layering fields of prejudice. Um, And sometimes, you know, people say, well, you know, you, you could write a contemporary novel about that. But there's a lot of people who don't invest in that. It's like, well, if I wanted to know about that, I would watch the news. Right. Mm -hmm. I would go out and, and talk to people today. But taking a step back from it, transplanting that experience of uh, feeling rejected because of one aspect or another aspect of often things you can't control, like your class, the the class that you're born into in the medieval society, uh, taking that back to another era gives people an opportunity to relax, to think, oh, you know, this is just an entertainment. I'm going to enjoy this. This is going to be fun. I'm going to learn more about medieval surgery. Won't that be cool? And then also to maybe reflect more on some of those themes that are similar from then to now. I like to think of it as the funhouse mirror. You know, fiction can hold up a mirror to society. And fantasy and science fiction hold up a funhouse mirror. They warp things so that you see them more clearly. I love that quote. It's so true, though. When you, th- I mean, I didn't think of it that way, but yeah, they warp things to make you see the reality. Of course they do. Uh, I have one final fun question, because we're getting toward our time. Hmm. But Ed and Matt, do you have any things you want to say, any questions before I ask my last fun one? Well, uh, this is kind of... Uh you know, out of left field. A good friend of mine who I suggested the uh, series to, he had, he'd read, he's read the first novel so far. Uh, he made the comment that it would be uh, really uh, cool to see it turned into a comic book. And I guess he wanted me to get your uh, kind of opinion on that. A graphic novel? Yeah, graphic novel. That would be pretty awesome. It was one of the things we actually talked about, uh, my agent and I, when we were first marketing the series. It was one of the rights that was deliberately sort of held back because we're hoping to be able to make that happen. Uh, I think there are some fantastic graphic novel artists out there, and I would be excited to see what that medium could do with Mm -hmm. developing my verbal descriptions into some visuals. Uh, That could be really exciting. It would would have to be rated mature, I promise you. (laughs) Well, you just made me start picturing, like, how could you depict the aura of different talisman and their strength to the character? Mm -hmm. Like, do you you actually draw an aura around it, or you just have it described? It's one of those questions, like, you never really think about the significance of a color of a thing until you make it a graphic. So that would be a really interesting thing to see. I've got a I've got another question. This is kind of a more back to the Star Wars thing. I know through reading uh, some of your stuff on Facebook, you said you'd like to write a Star Wars novel sometime. Uh, kind of curious, what era would you want to write one in? Probably Clone Wars. Probably Clone Wars. There's some 
interesting things that happen there, and I really enjoy the moral space sort of between the old and the new, uh, that this is the backdrop for the more familiar stories, uh, and yet we know that deep and dark and dangerous things are going to happen there. So, as you know, I'm always drawn to the darkness. <laughs> yes, I've noticed. But it is only through the darkness <laughs> that one can reach the light. See? Uh, so, my fun question, since our sponsor is TV Tropes, they've asked me to ask this question. As a fantasy <laughs> author and reader, what is the one trope of fantasy that makes you groan? <laughs> trope of fantasy that makes me groan. Uh, the fantasy creature who automatically understands humanity. Um I'm always thinking, why? Why would a dragon just out of the egg recognize human facial expression? <laughs> why is that? And and yet, you know, I understand that as authors and readers, we want to be able to relate to the fantasy creatures, but I think they should be more fantastic. And it should take them a while to figure out how to relate to people because they're not us. And they're probably not like us, and they don't think like us, and they might want to eat us. The same problem applies to aliens in science fiction. I mean, yes. so often, I mean, how many times oh. has, has in, an, in both literature and in cinema, somebody met a new alien race and automatically they understand not just human physiology, but human psychology, which I don't even understand human psychology, and I am one. <laughs> uh, so. I really think that the first thing a dragon would figure out about humans out of the egg is that we're crunchy. Yeah. Yeah. They'd probably be a lot like, you know, puppies. They would go around and just bite things to see what they taste like. Okay, now I want yeah. a, a, a novel where someone has a dragon that is, in fact, treated like a puppy. <laughs> you know, in, in A Song of Ice and Fire, they don't really rely on that trope, and I think that's kind of interesting. With the exception of Daenerys, the dragons just mm. try to eat everybody, so, you know. True. I thought that was... That's what I like about Martin, is because his is... You get the rug pulled out from under you really early in that series. You're yeah. oh, Ned <laughs> Ned Stark Ned Stark's the hero. He's gonna be the one to do this. This this beheaded. I'm like, okay, that's where we're going with this thing. <laughs> no, okay, no, let's Ned, do this. That's where we're headed. <laughs> oh, and in case you uh, just in case uh, our guest hasn't figured it out yet, we do not avoid spoilers or puns on this show. <laughs> I've, a, I've actually pulled my punches a little bit on her series because I want, I want people it, yeah. to experience. Yeah, uh, but ne necromancers. Oh my god, necromancers. <laughs> oh boy. You know, not that there there is nothing inherently wrong with necromancers. The guys just they just want to raise a family in peace. Ooh, there's a, oh, there's yeah, a future that's, being cute. Who's more powerful? <laughs> Who's more powerful? Necromancers or neuromancers? Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. Maybe we'll get there. Uh, totally go. Go ahead, DC. I, I think you should totally go for that. Maybe, yeah, I'll be very curious. Uh, I do want to say that the dragon trope, it, doesn't it go all the way back to Beowulf, though? I mean, wasn't there a dragon in there who was hoarding gold? Which I've always, that's one of the tropes that annoys me. Why would a dragon need gold? It's like, what does God need with a starship? What does a dragon <laughs> need with gold? I mean, and Tolkien did it, too. MacGuffin. <laughs> But why? Why would a dragon? Because the dwarf. Step because away had, from the MacGuffin. Because there had to be a reason for the dwarves to go back. They needed the gold. They should have just wanted to dig a diggy diggy hole. Exactly. Uh, See. Yeah, man. 
Dude, for work's sake. No. <laughs> and we've well, gotten dangerous. Because the inspiration for dragons were the uh, protoceratops fossils that were found in Mongolia and China, and they are often an indicator of where to find other kinds of minerals. Wow. Interesting. The more you know. We're going to have to put that rainbow through <laughs> twice. So what you're saying you know, should... is the Great Wall was actually We're built to keep out Mongolian dragons. Yep. You know, on this episode, I feel like we should have had an alternate reality where we could have had LeVar Burton on here as well, just for the reading rainbow perspective. That would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think uh, EC's think books are a little bit too Burton. mature for his audience. <laughs> well, Yeah. <laughs> Come on, kids! Let's go find out about amputation ligatures. Well, you know Stephen King <laughs> once wrote Stephen King once wrote a book for his daughter. Uh, it was called Eyes of the Dragon. It's still not very children appropriate. It's I will have you know it is that kind of a children's book, but a horribly perverted one. But anyway. Oh my lord! The trailer <laughs> for that new movie. I got so excited, but that's beside the point. Yeah. <laughs> I will. I will have you no know, good sir. When I was actually giving tours at one of the uh, state historic sites here in North Carolina for a summer. Children actually loved the medical part of the tour. Yes, and do. what I actually discussed mm-hmm. was the advancement of uh, amputation during the American Civil War. Yeah, we And yeah. the kids ate it up. The, the adults had a tendency to vomit. Yeah, we had a, a class <laughs> come into the archives where a student, we were doing the Civil War amputation because we actually had a we have a pension application where a man received a peg leg, one of the first – well, not a peg leg. It was the first kind of modern artificial leg in 1895, and we have the pension record for where he got it from the state, and there's a picture of him wearing the leg looking very stoic because it's 1895 and nobody knows how to smile yet. Uh, but the kids found the secondary book about it on the shelf, turned the page from his new limb to the old limb that was a picture of his gangrene – and showed everyone in the class, hey, look, it's a rotten stump. Kids like some strange things. Well, you know, I, I've, I'm one of the few people I know uh, who, through the course of college, I actually was able to attend uh, two autopsies at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Hospital. So, uh, you know, these horror movies don't really do it for me anymore so much if you've actually seen the insides of a human being. Yeah, I haven't, so they still do for me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm more able to handle historical violence than current violence. It's strange. Like, I can handle the violence in your book, EC, because it's medieval. I can handle the violence of a World War One trench because it's one of the things I've researched. But I get a paper cut, and I'm woozy. Mm. <laughs> so here's the real downer, right? So torture is, of course, one of the things they researched for these books. And I got a, a fantastic book about torture devices, fascinating, disturbing, and almost all of the examples in the book were contemporary. And that was really depressing. Oh, God. It's like, we shouldn't be doing this to each other anymore. Just, you know. Which is why I we was still expecting... need fantasy and sci-fi to put a window to our reality. There you go. You're getting close to that 1984 reference again, sir. Well, that was Fahrenheit 451 a few weeks ago. For I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got. I went on a bit of a mini rant a few weeks ago where I described our current dearth of facts and alternative reality, and I said we basically have achieved Fahrenheit 451 status, where instead of burning books, we have a pyromania against fact. Uh, So it's become sort of a urban legend amongst B and Q listeners now. But 
I stand by my words, which is why we need people like EC to give us a a picture as to what really needs to happen in our society. So, necromancers for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Necromancer twenty twenty. I'm down for it. <laughs> yeah, why yeah, vote for uh, the lesser evil? <laughs> Argo Bargle. Bring out your dead. Oh wait, that's Monty Python. Um, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> Don't listen to him. <laughs> Monty Python feel... and the Holy Hand Grenade meets Elisha Barber in no. <laughs> oh my God, a, a, a comedy with Elisha, and it would be <laughs> really funny. <laughs> you know, you should write a short story where Elisha has just the best day ever, and nothing bad happens to him. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody got hurt. Nobody. Just this once. Everybody lives. And there's the Doctor Who reference. I Booyah. was going to say, the and Doctor he, dances. Yes. yes. And, and that's why Christopher knows. Eccleston is better than David Tennant. I'll fight you on it. Oh, he's awesome. Yes. And you know, through the whole thing, everybody's going to be like, when is the shoe going to okay. drop? Eccleston. <laughs> right. They'll be like, right. the last page going, hey. That's another question we can ask to kind of close it up. EC, if they were to make a Hollywood production of your book and you could cast anyone, past or present, as Elisha Barber, who do you cast? Past or present. Don't torture Sean Bean again, please. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Bean's not allowed to live through things. No. no but like yeah, well. but but he got off easy with of the signal. beheading. <laughs> that would signal endings, wouldn't it? It would, yeah. I I don't know. I just don't necessarily visualize my characters as anybody. But themselves, they have to be which a is problematic because this is a this is a very popular question, and I need to come up with a <laughs> off the top of my head answer. Although it did occur to me when I saw the artist's depiction of Elijah on the cover of the book, he looks an awful lot like Patrick Swayze. I agree. Yeah, with I you. can see that he does, and I I could see that. I could. That could be. Nobody puts Bridget in a corner. <laughs> <laughs> it might. They might put her in a coma. Oh, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> and then what? Jerry Orbach is Lucius. What? No. No. Okay, I, I have to ask you. Bridget's a piece of work. Where did you get her from? Oh, she's a blast. She's a blast. The part of where I come from when I'm developing characters is that I want to make sure they each have their own individual perspective and drive. So... She's this extraordinarily driven person. She knows what she wants, and she's going to go after it. And as long as Elisha's going to go there with her, then she's happy with him. And and the minute she thinks maybe he won't, it becomes a problem. But developing those kinds of characters who are sort of single-mindedly in pursuit of goal, uh, yeah, she's she's perhaps the negative aspects of my own ambition. Coming out to play. Mm. So, Saying, you know, if I'm going after that thing, I am going after it with both hands and every weapon I can come up with. And on that note, EC, thank you so much for coming on our show today. We truly appreciate it. Thanks for having um, me. I had a great time. And uh, maybe I'd like to invite you to give us our perspective. One of the things we're doing this season is we're compiling the Mount Rushmore of nerd life. And we're doing it through subcategories, and one of the categories is, of course, genre literature. So if you wouldn't mind, if you would like to help us come up with that list in a se- several months when we get to that topic, 
you're more than welcome to come on as an expert or to just give us a list. Uh, the more opinions, the merrier as we try to figure out who we would carve on that metaphorical mountain of goodness, uh, since you are the expert in all things genre literature. <laughs> thank you. That sounds like fun. Wonderful. Uh, but uh, So I want to thank you again, EC, uh, and all listeners, shop. Uh, please buy the book. Do you get more... Uh, residuals if it's a print versus Amazon so we can direct people the right way. Uh, print versus electronic. However you love to read my books, just go out and read them. That's the bottom please, line. Please, everybody, please go out and buy her a copy. She's an amazing author and an amazing person. So thank you, uh, EC. Uh, and, of course, thank you, Ed, for coming on the show and for inviting our amazing guest on. You are awesome, as always. Thank you very much. It was an honor. And, Matt, you know what oh, you yes. have to do. It is that. You have to clean up the genre world and kill off Mr. Binks. Please do it. That's right, Josh. Well, this week, tired of being maligned for so long, Jar Jar wished upon a star to become a great hero, only to wake up the next morning locked in a room with E.C. Ambrose, George R.R. R. Martin, and a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> So, so bludgeon, bludgeon to death with a typewriter. Is that what it is? You'll have to, you'll have to read both of their next books to find out how it ends. Wait, hold on, hold on, Matt, Matt. I love, jo- I love George Martin, but you're supposing he'll actually release another book. Oh, he'll get there eventually. A song of ice and stuff. barbering. Oh my god! Excellent. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That was... I, well, EC, as an author, how would you dispose of Jar Jar, just cur- out of curiosity? <laughs> and, uh, I would probably make him bungee jump from his ears. Because <laughs> <laughs> those ears, done. man. So thank you again, Ed and Matt, and thank you, EC. I ho- we hope that we can talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having this me. This is Josh saying goodnight. Goodnight.